Well, good morning, Four Corners. I love uh, the words of the song we sang a couple of songs ago. Come, ye sinners, I will arise and go to Jesus. And, you know, the one thing I want to just submit to all of us this morning is that that is the application to every sermon. That's the application to every Bible study, to every song you would hear. That's always the application, whether you're on the outside looking in or you're on the inside looking down with a, a heavy heart or, you're, or you don't know where you are. <laughs> in, out, you just don't know. You're confused. The answer is always the same, to arise and go to Jesus. So praise God that we get another invitation this morning to do that. As we come here and gather that the Lord has, has seen fit in His grace to bring us providentially to this place this morning, to be exposed to truth, to God's truth, to be exposed to the praises of the people of God and prayers to Him. So what a mercy. I pray that we'll all be good stewards of this time and that we will open our hearts up to the Lord, or, or better yet, pray that He would open our hearts up to Himself So today we are continuing our series on Genesis. If you are visiting with us this morning and you haven't attended Four Corners before, uh, or maybe if you've just only come once in the recent past, we are working our way through the book of Genesis, and we now find ourselves at the end of chapter 19. So if you would go ahead and go there in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 19, towards the very end, uh, verses 30 to 38. Last week we covered the very well-known story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. This may or may not be something that you grew up knowing about or were familiar with. Uh, For those who have grown up in church, who have been exposed to Christian teaching, this is probably something that you've heard about many times. It is one of the, the premier expressions of God's judgment in the Bible. And even for those who have not grown up in church or maybe have not been exposed to Christian teaching, this is probably one of those stories that you've heard about. Uh, Perhaps, maybe not, but it is a very well-known story. And a big part, as I just said, of what we saw there was the wickedness evidenced and the judgment exercised. We saw depravity and destruction there in Sodom, the opening verses give us the sinfulness of Sodom, the level of its depravity, the level of its wickedness, and then towards the end we see God's judgment on that wickedness. The pervasive, persistent, and violent homosexuality in Sodom is met with God's powerful justice. That's what we encountered last week. And after reading that story, we might be tempted to think that it just doesn't get any worse, right? I mean, we, we read that story and we think in our minds, you know, that's as bad as it gets. That is the premier expression of human wickedness right there. We have just encountered that. We might be tempted to go there too quickly. The evil there, the lack of repentance there. Sodom was sin city on steroids, we would say, and we would just point to that outside of ourselves historically in the past and say, yes, that right there is pure human evil. But then Jesus surprises us with the words that Ken read a little earlier. Matthew chapter 11, verses 23 to 24, surprising words given the depth of wickedness and sin that we read about last week. Jesus says this, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. Listen to these words. It's incredible. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. What? We don't read of anyone in Capernaum uh, clawing down doors, blind, so filled with perverse lust to break through and, and rape 
men, visitors to the city. We see nothing of that sort in this city. Capernaum, what is Jesus saying? Well, Capernaum was Jesus' headquarters. They saw many mighty works, and yet they disregarded and rejected him. They saw his power, they saw his glory, and they disregarded and rejected him. They did not repent and follow him. And what Jesus is saying is that their response to him in Capernaum and his ministry exposes an evil that is greater than the evil of Sodom. It's surprising. Even Sodom, Jesus says, would have repented if Jesus had shown up and done his mighty works there. The Sodomites would have fallen on their faces and turned from their sin, repented, and listened to Christ, Jesus says. I think what Jesus is saying, and catch this because this is relevant for us. Jesus is saying that on judgment day, it will be more tolerable for unrepentant sodomites than for an unrepentant person who is continually exposed to the truth and glory of Christ. And that might be you. Do you hear that? That might be you. It's easy to look at Sodom and say, wow, that's some evil right there. And they are going to get it when they stand before the Lord. As Daniel 12 says, that every person will be raised from the dust of the earth and stand before God in their bodies and give an account for everything done in the body, whether good or bad, Paul will say. And that all sin will be accounted for and there will be levels of punishment. Let no one tell you all sin's the same, all all judgment be the same. No, God will judge justly and each man will be Given back his works in judgment. That's why Jesus says it when Pilate is questioning him that the sin of those who handed him over is greater. That's why Jesus here says it will be more tolerable. That means it will be, it will be more and less judgment in the day of judgment. And what Jesus is saying here is that it will be more tolerable, I think, by extension, by implication for us, it will be more tolerable for the person at the door of Lot's house on that day than for you who sit and listen to preaching of God's word and hear prayers to God and sing praises like in Christ alone and who do nothing with that. It will be more tolerable in the day of Sodom, in the day of judgment, for the Sodomite than for the person continually exposed to God's grace, truth, and glory in the face of Christ. So hear these words. If you've been coming and you've been listening and you've been unresponsive, fall on your face before God this morning and say, I do not want to endure a judgment that is heavier, that is greater than the judgment of those people we read about last week. This is serious, sober, heavy, real. Each of us will stand before God one day. So last week, the themes of depravity and destruction were big. But you will recall that the title of the sermon last week was Deliverance and Destruction. The mercy extended. That's a big part of this passage. We do have the depravity. We do have the destruction. But we also have the deliverance. We have God's mercy being extended to Lot. It was not just a story of judgment. It was a story of mercy. God rescues Lot. Abraham's nephew, along with his two daughters, and it would have been his wife as well, and in fact, even his sons-in-law, had they not laughed at him when he came and told them what was going to happen. And Lot's wife, had she not turned around and looked back at the wicked city because her heart was attached there to that wicked place, had she not done that, she too would have been saved by God's mercy. And Lot and his daughters... Despite the lingering and the complaining, God is merciful to him. Lot lingers so that the angels have to grab him by his hands and drag him out of the city. The Lord being merciful to him, it says in our text from last week. So that was what we covered then. 
And today we come to the aftermath of that story. What happens to Lot and his daughters? I was, I was telling uh, Walt to one of our other elders just a, a little while ago before the service started that one of the things I do at the beginning of the week in preparation for preaching is just I listen. I have a, a, a Bible app and I just listen to the text over and over and over and over and over and over again and take notes and observations. What's the basic theme? How does this text break up? What are recurring words? What are the contours of this text? And already begin to just sort of generate as many observations about this passage as I possibly can, meditating on it. And I will have to say that this is one of those texts, what we're going to look at today, that you really don't want to meditate upon. You don't want to go over and over and over again in your mind. This is dark, sad territory. But it is in God's word, and it has much to tell us. So here we are, Genesis 19, verses 30 to 38, one of the darkest hours, perhaps even in human history, certainly one of the darkest hours in the history of people who would be called the people of God, Lot, being a righteous man, will be in heaven. We'll see Lot, those of us who know the Lord, one day. The title for the sermon this morning is Sodom's Survivors. So if you will, please stand with me as we read this passage. Genesis 19, verses 30 to 38. This is God's word. It is perfect and profitable for his people. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come! Let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. If you will, go ahead and be seated, please. And let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing. He would help us to understand his word and apply it and see what God would have for us to know and do as a result of our encounter with this sacred scripture this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is profitable even in a genealogy, even in a place like this. So instructive how it just drips with meaning and implications for us, your people. And those here this morning who are not your people, perhaps, Father, we do not know whether, I do not know whether there are people gathered with us this morning who are unconverted, unregenerate, unbelievers. Father, I pray that you would be merciful to them. I pray that You would show them their state. You would make it abundantly clear to them that they are indeed unconverted and that they're on their way to hell and they need a Savior to save them from the wrath of God. Father, help them to see that as their greatest need. Not a good life, not comfort, not happy feelings, but removal of guilt before your face. God, would you expose that even this morning? To them, we know that you have the power to do that. We know that it lies both within your will and your ability to do so. Lord, we don't know case by case 
what your purposes are. So we ask that you'd be merciful this morning, God. We know that you ordain to do your work by means of prayer. And so we pray that you would do saving work in every person this morning. We ask you for this, God. We ask, we have not because we ask not. And so we come, we ask you for your saving work to be accomplished in the heart of every person in this building. Lord, if not this morning, that you would do it ultimately. We pray for our kids, these little souls, God, these little people, little people who are born in Adam. We see it every day. We see selfishness. We see these these marks of our own sin in our children. And God, we ask that you'd be merciful to them as you have been to us. We pray that they would hear the truth of Christ back there in those classes even now and that you would save their little souls, that you would show them that you are far more glorious than all the things that their hearts desire, that you would show yourself to be the supreme treasure of every person, and that you would show all competing idols to be nothing but lies. Father, show us the same, we pray this morning. Would you convert us more and more into Christ's likeness? Would you transform us? Would we see your glory your justice, your mercy, even in a text like this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So on your bulletin, you will notice three points to help guide us through this passage, three simple kind of markers to help us work through the content that we have here. By the way, that's what these points are about, simply put. They're just there to help us get in to to what's here in the text. So what we have here, I think, are three things. The situation, the sin, and the seed. Three, uh, three parts of this text that we're going to look at this morning. So first, we're going to look at the situation. Look with me at verse 30. We're going to spend a little bit of time here, so don't get worried when uh, we, we've been here for a while. You think, that's just the first verse. Uh, so verse 30. This is what it says. Now Lot went up. Out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. If we are to pick one word to describe what we see here, it might simply be the word sad. Just sad. This is, without reading any further, a sad situation. Lot Wanted prosperity and possessions. Going all the way back, if you trace the story of Lot so far, he wanted prosperity and possessions, but now he has nothing. Literally has nothing. I mean, they had to grab his arm and carry him out of the city. You don't get the impression that he packed a bag or anything like that. They just drug him out. He has nothing. Lot wanted society, but now he's living alone with his daughters Lot wanted urban living, but now his home is a cave. Not in a city, not a nice flat or apartment, you know, overlooking the main main street. He's living in a cave in the hills. Lot wanted safety, and now he is afraid. He's not even trusting the guarantee of safety that came from the angels. I mean, they told him, they said, you go to the hills... This is a a reiteration, by the way, what we've already seen. They said, go to the hills. He's scared to go to the hills because he thinks if he goes in that direction that he's going to get overtaken by the judgment that's coming on Sodom. So he says, can I go over there to that little city? That little city, Zoar was its name. Can I go over there to that little place? And they say, okay, fine, we'll grant this to you and we won't destroy that city. That city was on the list. We won't destroy that city on your account. So he doesn't trust that the angels... uh, Escape route is viable. And then here we see that even after the angels told him, fine, we won't destroy that city. And then they even said, we can't do anything until you get there. He still is filled with fear. Probably the same fear, I think, that we saw with his decision to request to go to Zoar. He is afraid. This is sad. And as we read in the following verses, this sad situation just gets worse. And in order to understand how this situation came to be, which we have to do here, 
we have to return again to our first encounter with Lot in chapter 13. This is the last mention of Lot in all of the Old Testament. So let's go back to the first, not the first mention of Lot, because Lot is mentioned very early, but the first occurrence of Lot being a character, really, an active character in the narrative. Now, Lot is mentioned, the descendants of Lot are mentioned in the Old Testament after this, but Lot's gone from the pages of Scripture after Genesis 19, verses 30 to 38. So let's go back. This is the end. Let's go back to the beginning, really, and look at Lot in chapter 13. Up to that point, so before what we find in chapter 13, up to that point, Abraham, Lot's uncle, had been called, blessed, and protected by God. We read about that in chapter 12. Even in Abraham's folly and his, his, uh, his feebleness of faith, God still is with him. God is protecting Abraham and blessing Abraham. God had given him huge promises and many possessions. And Lot, as Abraham's nephew, was right in the middle of it all. I mean, that's the incredible thing about Lot is he's just a sidebar figure. He's just there with Abraham. Everything he has, everything he is, is on account of Abraham. He's just right there in the middle of all this blessing, all this promise, all this calling, all this grace. He was basking in the glory of God's grace to Abraham. If you want to know Lot's experience up to that point, that's exactly what his experience was. As Abraham prospers, Lot prospers. As Abraham is shielded and protected, Lot is shielded and protected. And then we get to chapter 13. Strife between the herdsmen of Lot and Abraham. Lot has all these herds. Abraham has all these herds. You have to have people to care for the herds. Those guys don't get along. That's what's going on. So Abraham, as a peacemaker, proposes that they separate. And he gives Lot the choice of the land. You get the impression here, I think. We don't know this, but perhaps this is, this is really the, the, the burden of Lot. This, the, the burden of blame falls on Lot's herdsmen, that, that he's creating, his herdsmen are creating all of this ruckus. I mean, you would expect that the herdsmen of Lot would have been told by Lot, look, Abraham He is the patriarch. He's the man here. You go wherever Abraham's herds are not. I think at the end of the day, if there's any strife, the blame for it has to fall on Lot, who has everything he does because of Abraham. But you have probably some entitlement here. But Abraham nonetheless tells him, you, you choose, Lot. We're going to separate because it's too crazy. We're not getting along. Our herdsmen are not getting along. You go wherever you'd like. The land is before you. And as we read Lot's response, I want you to see that this was really the defining moment in Lot's life. So we're at the end of Lot's life now. Presumably Lot, you know, the daughters say he's old. Presumably Lot doesn't live very much longer after this. It's kind of the impression I get. doesn't tell us that explicitly. But we're looking at the end of Lot's life. Let's go back here. And what we find in chapter 13 is a defining moment in Lot's life. In other words, his response in chapter 13 is crucial to understanding his situation at the end of chapter 19. But before I read it, I just want to ask you a question. Maybe this is a defining moment in your life. So I want you to perk up your ears now. Maybe this is a defining moment. I don't don't know your situation. But maybe you're in a similar situation to Lot. And what is facing you in your life right now, the, the circle of temptations and choices that are in your circumstances, in your life, really constitute a chapter 13 moment in your story. Look at Lot's response. 13, 10 to 13, and Lot lifted up his eyes. Look at this. Much like Eve. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. You could just see his eyes getting bigger and bigger and bigger. All the prospects of having his herds be on that land. All the prospects of being able to possess all of that. You see his eyes getting big. Like a little kid coming into the living room on Christmas morning. This is Lot as he looks out over the Jordan Valley. 
well watered everywhere, everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. This is one moment. This is one moment in Lot's life. You have to see the weight of this. This is one moment in Lot's life, and yet it sets the trajectory for everything we've read. How could Lot have known as he stood there and he looked out over the Jordan Valley that this was it? This was the defining moment of his life. And that where he would end up, the circumstances we read today, this disgusting narrative, is is the legacy of this man. And it goes back to this moment. This is one moment of pride. He disregards his uncle. This is one moment of greed. He wants the best, period. This is one moment of worldliness. He doesn't try to stay with Abraham. He quickly exchanges the spiritual blessings for earthly delights. In this sense, he's a lot like Esau, although the text doesn't give us any hope for Esau, but he's a lot like Esau in that that which is spiritual, that which comes with the stamp of God, that which is given with all of God's promises as God's blessing is little to him. It is of little import to him when compared with all the beauty and grandeur, grandeur of earthly blessings, earthly delights. Being with Abraham, the blessed man, the covenant man, God's man, means very little to this man Lot. He exchanges the spiritual for the earthly. And this is one moment of carelessness. His pursuit of earthly gain blinds him to the dangers of living near the wicked city. He's been with Abraham long enough now to know that worship of God is radically distinct from worship of any of the other gods that he's encountered. Way back in Mesopotamia, worshiping the moon, coming through Canaan, all of these wicked deities... These false gods worshipped demons, as Paul will say, worshipping demons. Yet Lot, in his carelessness, moves himself near the wicked city. This dipping the toe in the world ends in Lot living there and giving his own daughters to their sons in marriage. Do you see that? We start with a man who looks out over these, these delights. These wonderful delights, like in the Chronicles of Narnia. Look at, ooh, it just looks so tasty. I have to have that. And he sees these delights and he goes after those despite the fact that it puts him right up against a wicked city. A wicked city. And that results in him going there, living there, dwelling there, being at the gate, having daughters there, and giving his daughters over to their sons in marriage. It's incredible. He has dipped his toe here, and by chapter 19, he's been swimming in Sodom for a long time, immersed in it. This is where everything went wrong in Lot's life, chapter 13. This moment, everything went wrong here. As one commentator says, Kenneth Matthews, Lot's choice of the plain resulted in the loss of his possessions and a tarnished legacy. Everything goes back to this point. So what are the implications for us? Let's just consider a few questions. The first one is this. Are your present choices setting you on a trajectory to the cave? To this sad situation? That's where Lot was headed. The moment he decided to be led by his own lusts, the moment that he presumed and was led by his own pride, his own greed, the moment that he took the spiritual and threw it on the ground and trampled on it with the earthly desires is the moment he set a course for himself that led to this cave. And so the question for us is, are your present choices setting you on a path to the cave? Turn this morning. Turn from these choices. If you are already in the cave, what do you do now? So, let's say 
You, say, you look at your life this morning and you can relate to Lot. You say, I, I can look back on my life and I can see where there was these crucial points in my life and the Lord was there and he was saying, don't do that. And I disobeyed God and I set a, a course for myself. I set a path for myself and that's why I am where I'm at now, today. What do you do? Just sit in the cave? Well, I think there, there's a... I think we can infer from this that Lot could have gone back to Abraham. Why? This is the question that's perplexed me really all week. Is why does Lot not at this stage go back to Abraham? It it has to boil down either to a lack of faith. Lot knew God's promises to Abraham. Lot knew that God had told him that he would inherit the land, that he would be blessed, the whole world would be blessed through him. All those promises had already come. Certainly Abraham was not destroyed by the fire and brimstone from heaven. Certainly Abraham is just where Lot left him. But Lot won't go back to Abraham. His heart has drifted so far from that. But he could have. He could have gone back. And he could have been wrapped back up in this man who prayed for him. This man who saved him, who rescued him. His uncle wrapped back up. Him and his two daughters in the love and blessing and promise and grace of Abraham. But he doesn't return. In his shame and in his pride and in his fear, he just ducks himself into this cave. This little pocket of darkness. Another question that I think we need to ask is, are you settling for a lot like Christian life? Let me tell you what I mean by that. I think that we face a temptation, and this might be you, to think, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm saved by God's grace. Christ's blood covers me. And man, I, you know, I mess up and I sin, but I'm, I'm saved and I'm, I'm going to be in heaven and I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm falling back on the grace of Christ. I'm falling back on the blood of Christ. And, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put some, some effort into this Christian life, maybe here and there. But, but, but Christ has saved me. And there you go. I'm saved. I'm in. Well, the first thing I would say is if you think like that, you may not be a Christian at all. But I think sometimes Christians are tempted to think that way. So I want you to hear this warning. Lot was righteous. The New Testament affirms that. He was a believer in God. That means that Christ's future sacrifice covered Lot. That Christ's blood covered Lot. The future sacrifice covered him in the past. Like you, Christian. Yes, Christ's blood has washed away all your sins. You're covered with his righteousness. And in God's sight are righteous. Just like Lot. Yet, yet, Yet his life was wasted and it ended in a sad state of sin. And so I ask you, if you've been settling for a lot like Christianity, is this what you want for your life? This is a a, a glaring warning from the Bible. Do you want a lot like Christian life? Because if vigilance and, and striving after Christ does not mark your life, that's where you're headed to this cave. To a wasted life. Yes. 1 Corinthians 3. You will be saved. But as through fire. Paul says. As all the stubbly works that you have done in this life. Are burn up. In the life to come. Lot like Christian life. Wasted. So we've seen the situation. And now we come to the sin. So let's look at verses 31 to 35, the sin. And the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old. And there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, 
I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. So here we see Lot and his daughters sinking even deeper, going from a sad situation to sexual sin, from living with his daughters to lying with his daughters. And I think there are various layers to this sin, what we read here, various layers that we really need to peel back. First, there is the scheming. The daughter's scheme, you have to catch this, the daughter's scheme because they are afraid. That's why they come up with this plan. That's why the older comes up with this plan. Their father's fear has taken hold of their hearts as well. Remember, Lot is afraid. And now we see these daughters afraid. What are they they saying? Our father is old. And who knows if any men are still alive in this land or even on the whole earth. I mean, from their perspective, they don't know. They just know that God has blasted everything they've seen. And maybe Lot left Zoar, was communicating to his daughters, God's going to blast that place too. I mean, he's, you know he's going to do it. So as far as they're, who knows, maybe, they, maybe God's blasted the whole world. At least everyone in the land, the men they were engaged to are certainly gone. So they say our father's old, and who knows if any men are still alive in this land or even on the earth to impregnate us so that we can have offspring. That is their fear. Just like their father, their hearts are filled with fear. They are very far away from any place of faith. This fear that has taken over Lot, has taken over his daughters, very far from the place of faith that you find with Abraham. You remember the stories we've heard of Abraham, that settled place. He, he can give all the land to Lot wherever he chooses because he knows God's promises. He's settled. He's safe. He could go into battle with 300 men against these powerful foreign nations with courage because he knows that the Lord is with him. All that we see here with Lot and his daughters is the opposite of faith. It's just fear. So that's the first. We have to get that. The second is there is the idolatry. Their idolatry of offspring drives them to the darkest of sins. You have to see that. It, I, I, suppose, I suppose one might could say that the fact that these daughters are not driven by lust makes this passage a little more palatable. I mean, maybe that's the wrong word because there's nothing palatable about this passage. But what we have here is not a kind of lustful intention. It's not as though they want to be with their father in that kind of way. It is simply, strictly a using of their father as a tool for their own idolatry. Their idolatry of offspring. They want a child. They don't want to be left childless. And they'll do whatever it takes in order to make sure that that happens. Whatever it takes, clearly. Idols will push us into places we would never dream of going. This is a dark, dark place. In fact, I suppose if, if you took two daughters and they listed all of the things that they would never do, this would have to be at the top of the list if it even came to mind. And here we see that the idol is so powerful that it is worth doing anything to attain. And that's what idolatry does to our lives. It will make us justify And do all kinds of wicked things that we would never dream of doing in our right minds before we started bowing down to that idol. But now, the idol allows us to free up our hearts to do even this, perhaps. This is sad. This is dark. And then there is the act itself. 
Simply put, they commit incest with their father. They know it's wrong and unacceptable. So it will only happen if they can get him so drunk that he won't even know what's happening. That they know that this is not approved of. They recognize there's no way their, their father would consent to such a wicked thing. And so what do they do? Knowing how evil it is, knowing how wicked it is, they say, we've got to get him so drunk that he will have no concept of what's going on. And I don't even know what the mechanics of all of that are. It's incredible to think. But, but the text is clear. Lot had no idea what happened. We have to go with that. And commentators wrestle with this. But I think we have to go with what the text says. Lot is at least, insofar as the act itself is concerned, not culpable. Lot's culpable for a lot of things. And the entire circumstance is a fruit of his own life. But the act itself was the daughters, they get him so drunk that he won't even know. Leviticus eighteen six to 7, None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. And that means sexual relations. That's exactly what happens here with these daughters of Lot. That was the law. It came years later. But if you go back in ancient law codes, this is universal. People know this is not right. People in the most wicked contexts know this is not right. This is embedded in the heart of every person that you don't do this evil. To make matters worse, they sexually exploit their own father and they do it twice. It is striking. One of the things that struck me a lot this week is that It is striking that the oldest daughter seems to feel no disgusted remorse at all. That's the incredible thing. I mean, to be so enraptured with this idol that you do this wicked thing, but then you would expect that she would fall on her face afterwards, after having done it. What have I done? This is so evil. This is so terrible. This is so gross. That's not what happens at all. Instead, she goes to her younger sister as though it was a great idea. See how it worked out. You do it too. Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. Just so casual, so willing, so unaffected by sin. This is what a torn up, seared conscience looks like. The more we sin, the more we harden our consciences so that that voice inside of us that says, no, 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 becomes like a whisper. And then we don't hear it at all. So what in the world is going on here? I mean, we read this story and it just, it, it shakes us. It's, it's so strange. It is so odd It seems to come out of nowhere, out of left field. What are we to make of this story? Well, I think there is a cultural and a familial dynamic at work here. So let's talk about those two things. I think there's a cultural and a familial dynamic. So first, the cultural dynamic. What is going on here? Well, this is the culture of Sodom working itself out in Lot's family. You cannot miss that. What do I mean there? You don't immerse yourself in a place like Sodom without imbibing, drinking in that worldview. And in this case, it is a worldview of perverse sexuality. You may say, yeah, but it's not that. It's not daughter's with their fathers, I mean, yeah, it's, it's this, but it's not that. And here's what we need to understand is that these things are grouped. They're grouped together. This may strike you as strange. For parents, it may be comforting to you. But one of the questions we ask on our application to those who would be serving in our children's ministry is, have you looked at pornography in the last three years? We ask that question. You may say, well, that's not fair. What does my looking at pornography imply that I'm going to do something with a child? No, not necessarily. 
And we talk through it and we ask questions. And if there's a, a person in the church who answers yes to that question, we talk with them. We find out what the details of that are. But here's what we need to see. Here's what we need to understand is that where there is sexual sin, immorality, and perversion, and I would say looking at pornography for personal fulfillment as a, as a way of finding that sexual gratification is perverse, and when we do that, when we, when we engage in these sins, we are inviting all kinds of other sexual sins into our lives. We are twisting our minds and perverting our hearts. And that's the reason why in Leviticus, you read these passages that deal with sexual sin as a whole. Everything from incest, bestiality, homosexuality, and so forth. All of these things grouped together in the law. They're connected. They are connected. So we see here a culture of perversity, a, cultural of, a culture of sexual license has made its way deep into the hearts of these two girls, these two daughters of Lot. And I want to say this to us is so important. What we immerse ourselves in shapes the hearts and actions of our children. Whatever it is we choose to listen to, to watch, to, to make a part of the culture of our home, a culture of the pattern and rhythm of our lives, those things infuse themselves deep into the hearts of our children and into their behavior and into their value system. You may think it's no big deal, but it goes very deep. Kent Hughes says, It is evident that Lot's life choices had promoted his daughter's absorption of the spirit of Sodom into their souls. Why do they do what they do in this cave? Where were they raised? That's the first, the cultural dynamic, but the second is equally important, and that is the family dynamic. Lot has just recently offered his daughters to be, ex to be sexually exploited by the men of Sodom. I mean, it's incredible. Lot, these, these visitors come, and they go into Lot's house, and Lot is so concerned with, with hospitality and saving face and so forth. Hospitality being a good thing, sure, but he's so concerned with all of this that when the men of Sodom come to tear down the door so they can be with these two men, Lot walks outside and says, don't mess with these men. Here, Boom, take my daughters. Just throw them in the street. Take my daughters and do with them as you please. That's what he says about his two girls. These two girls who now are with him in this cave. What did this tell them about sexuality when they heard their father say these words? What did they learn from their father about sexuality in that moment? About the sanctity of their own bodies? How did this dispose their hearts to their own father who here becomes a mere tool for their selfish and perverse use? You see that it's twofold. It's not just the fact that sexuality becomes totally, uh, uh, totally twisted through what their father said. But it's also the fact that when their father did that to them, he cut their heart rather than shepherding their hearts. He cut their heart out. And now... They use him as a mere tool. The irony here is incredible. One commentator says, The one who offered his daughters for the sexual gratification of his wicked neighbors now becomes the object of his daughter's incestuous relationship. The irony is incredible. And it would be impossible to, to see a situation where these daughters don't even have this on their radar, what their father had just done to them. So I want to go back and briefly draw your attention to the place of alcohol in this story because I think it offers an important implication for us. Alcohol is here, present in this text. It's not the main idea, but it's here. We talked about this when we studied Noah, right? Remember? Noah passes out drunk. He's exposed and he is dishonored by his son, Ham. And what I want you to notice today is the powerful effect that alcohol can have. 
Let me say that again. The powerful effect that alcohol can have. It's not alcohol that made Lot do this. But it is alcohol that was used as a means. Do you see that? A tool for this. For what we're reading. This is the key that unlocks the door of everything found in this room of chapter 19. Verses 30 to 38. This incestuous room unlocked with the key of alcohol. You can't read this text without seeing that. See how it can bring you to such a mindless state. See how it can lead to the most wicked acts. This passage warns us to take alcohol seriously. And maybe you don't. Maybe you just play with it. Get a little buzz. Drink with your friends. When you go out of town, it's okay. We need to understand Paul's words in Ephesians 5.18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Debauchery. I can't imagine that Paul wrote those words without thinking of Noah and Lot. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Whatever sense of joy or happiness or cheer or satisfaction that you so desperately want from that alcohol, from those drinks, Christ gives you by His indwelling Spirit. Seek that. Not this little ephemeral buzz of delight. Because if taken to excess... And it will creep up on you. These are the kind of things that potentially come. So thirdly, let's look at the seed. We've seen the situation and the sin. And now as we finish up this morning in this passage, we see the seed. Look at verses 36 to 38. It says this, Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Here we get the result of this incest. We see, we've, we've set it up. We see the background to it. Then we see it play out. And then now in these latter verses we see the result. What comes of this and here we have two, two sons. The first is named Moab, which essentially means from my father. The second is Ben-Ami, which means son of my paternal kinsman, basically, is the way we should understand those two names. So the name's very reflective of the origin. And we are told that these two sons become two nations, the Moabites and the Ammonites. And so... Just by way of very quick flyover, what do, what do we find about the Moabites and the Ammonites when we read through the Old Testament? I mean, we could go through here and do a study on this and look at various passages and various scenarios. You know, Balaam is hired by the king of the, the Moabites to curse Israel. And other, we, we see we all of these stories, but I just want to give you two little snapshots to get across two things. First... We see that these nations will be associated with immorality and leading Israel astray. So Numbers 25, 1-3, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel." Those were the Moabites. The Moabites come forth from this son Moab, give rise to a nation. By the time we get to Numbers 25, we have them perverting the worship of Israel, the true God, and worshiping these false gods. A little snapshot there, what we find elsewhere. And then second, they will mistreat Israel. And we get this, an example of this in Zephaniah 2.8. He says this, this is the Lord speaking through the prophet Zephaniah. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. And you can go all over the Old Testament and see all of the ways that Moab and Ammon, that the Moabites and Ammonites mistreated the people of Israel. So here we have not only a cave, listen to this, let's put it all together. 
Here we have not only a cave, not only incestuous relationships, a relationship with daughters, but the creation of nations that will lead astray and stand against the descendants of Abraham, the very one who saved Lot's life. This is the ultimate effect of Lot's troubled life and foolish choices. And how sobering it is to think that it all goes back to chapter 13. I mean, think about it. There's not a moment in life that's unimportant. There's not a single choice that is irrelevant. Everything we do, everything we think, every word we speak matters for decades and centuries to come and into eternity. When we just live life like lazy people, like sloths, moving through our lives with a lack of intentionality and with carelessness and no vigilance. This is what it produces for generations and generations. Parent, the most important thing we can do is, as I heard John Piper say in a sermon, when I first had, when we had our first child, go hard after God. That is what every parent must do. Go hard after God. You can make many mistakes as a parent. But if you go hard after God, you are doing more for them than you'll ever know. This is Lot's legacy. Sad, but real. It will go for many generations. But as I close this morning, I want to use two words that I love so much from Ephesians chapter 2. But God. Even here, we see the grace of God at work. How? I mean, this is just, if we ended right now, we just sort of slump our heads. This is just a really sad, dark story that we just really quickly want to get out of our minds. Wish I'd never even read that. Thank you. How is it that we see God's grace at work here in this passage? It's amazing. We see God's grace when we come to the young Moabitess, Ruth. She's from Moab. She comes from this wickedness in the cave. Ruth. Ruth. She marries Boaz and becomes part of the line of David. She is David's great Grandmother, this Moabitess woman. She marries Boaz, becomes part of David's line, which ultimately gives rise to the Christ. So when we read in the genealogy of Matthew, these names like Ruth and Boaz, and when we get these Tamar, and when we see Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, We are reminded that the coming of Christ is to deal with sin, even the very sin that litters the people who come before him, the very sin of his ancestors. He comes as the perfect sinless one to deal with the sin of his people, the sin of Abraham and his folly, the sin of Lot. He comes to take away the sins of of those whom God has given him. And so, as we started this morning, arise and go to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace in the midst of human sin and folly. We see how you pull in the people of sinful nations throughout the Old Testament. You pull them into the orbit of your grace and your mercy and you, you give them purpose and meaning and you ordain their lives to be significant in human history. God, what a blessing to see you overpowering sin. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We trust that with the nations of the world. Help us trust that in our own lives. We know that in truth, we are much more like Lot than anything else, Father. And yet we know that we have in Christ our perfect Redeemer, Substitute, and Shepherd. 
And we pray not just that we would know that we have been redeemed, but that we would follow the shepherd day by day in our redemption. That we would not make a pact with sin of any kind. That we would hate sin. That we would fear you in reverential awe. And that is, as Proverbs tells us, to hate evil. Wherever it may be found, but especially in our own eyes, in our own hearts. Would you pluck the wickedness out of our lives? Would you use such a dark, unsavory story as this today to do a mighty work of grace and sanctification in our lives? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.